0: Hello and welcome to the Ashi podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the Ashi podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with Ashi. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and of course to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first official recording of the podcast series for the journal Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology, Shay's new open access journal. My name is Priya Nori. I am the deputy editor of ASHI, and I'm joined here this morning by Dr. Pam Bailey, who is our social media editor. And of course, our guest, the incomparable Dr. Suzanne Bradley. Welcome Dr. Bradley, we're so thrilled to have you this morning. So for those who may not be completely familiar with her bio, Dr. Bradley received her AB magna cum laude in biology from Mount Holyoke College and her MD from the State University of New York at Buffalo School of Medicine. She completed an internal medicine residency at Ohio State University Hospitals and fellowships in infectious diseases in geriatric medicine at the University of Michigan. She's a fellow of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the American College of Physicians, and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. Dr. Bradley is a nationally recognized expert in the problem of infectious diseases in older adults. Her research has focused on the epidemiology and prevention of infections in older adults and in nursing home residents. She has served as chair of the Shea Long-Term Care Committee. Um, She's an expert reviewer for the Center for Disease Control and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. She's a member of the Office of the Medical Inspector Veterans Health Administration Nursing Home Infection Surveillance Task Force. And she served uh, her, probably her best known role to Shea members is, of course, as Editor-in-Chief of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology for at least 15 years. Uh, So welcome Dr. Bradley, great to have you here this morning. Thank you so much, Priya, glad to be here. Pam, good morning to you. Morning. So Dr. Bradley was invited by Ashley a couple months ago to contribute to a new section that we have planned for the journal entitled Women in Epidemiology. And because our readership is emerging markets, uh, international readership, young folks just getting into the game of epidemiology and stewardship, we thought that nothing would be better than to hear directly from her what her journey has been like. So Dr. Bradley, can we start by talking about your role as probably the best known editor in chief of Itchy to date and what you feel that are your biggest moments, uh, what you're most proud of in your role as uh, as Editor-in-Chief?
0: Sure. My greatest achievement really was making sure that the readers had 15 years of great content that was delivered in a timely manner and on a regular basis. There was uh, no aspect of the journal that remained untouched uh, over that time. Everything from the letters that went out to podcasts twitter feeds and the like and i think i was very happy to hear that uh, our impact factor went way up uh, after two frankly very daunting years uh, of the uh, pandemic when we had thousands of submissions received whereas previously they'd been in the hundreds so it was really a great a great run
1: that's incredible, Dr. Bradley.
0: Can you remind us again what that current impact factor is? It's 6.5. Now, remember, there have been a lot of changes in how the impact factor has been calculated, and it actually only covers part of the pandemic. It's the prior, it's not 2022, it's the prior two years before mm-hmm. 2021. So hopefully some uh, upward trajectory in the future. Of Of course, congratulations to
1: you and your team on that uh, incredible achievement, which of course is the society's achievement, really, I think it means so much to a lot of us. Can you talk about what you've seen over the years in terms of where you found yourself as a woman in epidemiology and how you've seen some of those changes evolve over time?
0: Sure. I think you have to remember when I was, and I think we have to give even more context. When I was a medical student, 30% of our class uh, were women. And when I was a resident of a class of almost 20, there were two women, one of whom was married to a faculty member and left at the end of the first year. So I was pretty much on my... On my own, most times, uh, when I was a fellow, I was one of one of four fellows and uh, the only woman. So you came to rely a lot on the having great mentorship, not only from the few women we encountered, which were vanishingly few, and men who were willing to help. So I think that, Context tells you that things have markedly changed. E, have forgotten what percent of women nationwide are in our medical school classes. And certainly in infection control and hospital epidemiology, I believe uh, it's really a wim- woman dominated field.
2: We are up. Just going to insert. We are up to approximately fifty percent. So it's quite even in medical school admissions, and some schools are even reporting a slight, like fifty-two percent female predominance. So
0: a lot of lot has changed. Sure, sure, and I think more women are going to uh, college these days. So I think it will continue to evolve in that direction.
2: I wanted to ask since you were talking about being one of few women across the board in medical school and residency, and you were talking about the importance of mentorship. Do you feel that discussions of mentorship, the mentor-mentee role has changed since then? I feel like there's a lot of discussion about the importance of it nowadays in in careers. Has that become more obvious
0: considering the importance of mentoring? I think so. I mean, when I started, and I often tell students and residents and fellows that you work so hard to get into your profession that you don't realize that once you are in epidemiology or uh, infectious diseases, that you really need other people to get you to the next level, depending on what your goals are. And so it's really critical to have people who are willing to go to bat for you, who are willing to make the sacrifices necessarily. You know, a mentorship role is really one born of compassion and unwavering devotion to that person without ideally any benefit for oneself. So it's really a selfless role. So, yes. I think the other thing is you're likely to have more than one mentor come along the way at different stages of your career. And I think mentorship evolves, you know, the definition of mentorship evolves over time. I've certainly had people who've been willing to help me on many, many occasions uh, during my career. So, yes, I think it, you will evolve. uh, You will need multiple people to help you, you can't just do it yourself.
1: So Dr. Bradley, on that note, without giving away too much about your uh, your piece that, that we recently published, you start by saying, like many women, my career path was not a linear one. Because uh, we're really striving to have our audience hear directly from you about your, your journey. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and then maybe mention some of the important mentors you've had along the way?
0: Sure. Well, when I came to infectious diseases as a fellow, I really did so because I really admired the clinicians that I met. I had no idea what uh, an academic career involved. I just knew that, gee, there was a research component. I wanted to experience all of that. And uh, I wanted to find people that to work with that, uh, you know, I wanted to work hard from dawn to dusk if necessary and enjoy working with them. I was not a, a person who came out of a, a research university setting where I had a specific goal in mind and a specific group of people I wanted to work with. So I was basically an open book at that time. So let's see, without giving too much away, initially I had interviewed at a program uh, that will go unnamed uh, that offered a specific track in epidemiology, and given my worldview at the time, I said, gee, that seems awfully narrow, I I don't want to do that. Uh, I ended up going to Michigan, and again, my philosophy was I wanted to work with somebody who really inspired me. And I knew people who were going to various places, working on topics that were hot at the time, only to find out their mentors had left and uh, were jumping around pursuing something that I didn't see as long, long lived. So I was fortunate to run into uh, uh, Dr. Kaufman, who I think interviewed me first at Michigan she was one of the few women i had encountered during my training and i thought gee what she's doing is fascinating i wanted i want to work with her and it was purely on a gut level there was no deeper thought process than that to be honest you
1: know a lot of us can relate to to that I'm going to shout out another Shea member for whom I had a similar gut feeling, who is uh, Belinda Ostrowski, who you know, you know well, but uh, same same deal. I think first day of fellowship, I said, I don't care what she does or what her career is like. I just want to work with her. So I just want to give a shout out to to uh, mentors and to Shea members, of course.
2: And I just want to shout out since we're, since we're doing this. So, I mean, we're talking about women in EPI, but also... Gonzalo Behrman is my mentor, current editor-in-chief of of ASHI. Would not be in the place I am today without the help of that. As as Dr. Bradley already mentioned, the selfless relationship that our mentors have for for mentees.
0: So I think the next stage was there really wasn't a job for me at Michigan at the time. Um, The clinical track at Michigan really didn't exist. And if I was going to stay, I knew I had to write a grant, which fortunately was funded. I mean, I basically had to have something in place by my second year. So I knew I had to have funding, but the message was very clear at the time that they didn't keep their own own fellows. And I was basically told, even though I had a mentored NIH grant, that I had to go elsewhere which didn't make a lot of sense, particularly uh, since I was just in my, you know, finishing my second year. Fortunately, I had somebody who was willing to go to bat for me and pay for me uh, and supplement me. I mean, I had a little bit of money, but not a lot to do the project. It wasn't going to cover everything. Uh, So uh, that really, really helped. But surviving on soft money is not easy. And I was working in geriatrics uh, and aging at the time, and they needed uh, they needed faculty. So I did an abbreviated fellowship in geriatrics and joined their faculty. And really uh, I was a member of the geriatrics faculty for 23 years. I didn't have a formal appointment in infectious diseases, even though I continued to do infectious diseases. So there were, Sacrifices that were were made financially and in terms of time to get where get where I wanted to go, and then keeping things broad, I met uh, Dr. Yashikawa, who introduced me to American Journal of uh, Geriatrics, where I served as a section editor, and on that basis was a that was a perfect uh, segue into becoming the editor of editor of Itchy. And Lindsay Nicole uh, was also very supportive in terms of giving me uh, opportunities in nursing home related infection to become known in the in the Shea Shea Society. So, a number of people helped me along the way. I couldn't have done it myself.
2: I wanted to ask specifically about something you mentioned in the piece. So, spoiler alert for those who haven't read it yet, but. You were talking about how you transitioned, just now you were talking about how you transitioned into the roles that stepping stone led for you to be the editor in chief of ITCHY. But you also specifically talked about barriers, one of which was when you were appointed editor in chief and a notable lack of support on behalf of some folks. Can you expand on that experience further and how it shaped your career?
0: Well, I guess since I was the first woman editor of Itchy and not necessarily the best known candidate, I was not surprised that there would be some backlash. People uh, signed off of the board or expressed that they questioned whether I had the ability to do the job in our first meeting, which is fair. That's quite all right, but you just dig down harder and uh, prove them prove them wrong. That's that's the way thing that's the way things are. I think the other thing is that the publisher at the time recommended to me that we we previously had a lot of sections uh, that weren't very productive. and the discussion was, well, should we get rid of some of the sections or all of the sections? And I made the decision that we were going to really focus on uh, our backlog of content. And that meant getting, getting rid of sections. And I'm sure that made people made people who were section editors uh, unhappy, but we dealt with it. That's part of the job. So
1: speaking of journals, um, given your vast experience and seeing different trends and um, tides shift in terms of topics of interest for our community and our society. What advice would you give to ASHI and our team in terms of how to grow, how to sustain and really how to make a name for ourselves looking forward?
0: I think it's about taking advantage of opportunities. You have to be constantly looking for, you know, what is the reader interested in? It's not necessarily what I'm interested in, but uh, are there things out there that uh, not only can you recognize, but but grasp quickly? So I made it a point to have our, our pieces published in a timely manner, which hadn't happened previously. And so When CDC called or other authors who had interesting topics, I had an open door. I tried not to have preconceived notions uh, about things. Now, sometimes um, you don't want to get so broad that you're competing with other broad journals like uh, uh, CID or JAMA and taking things that that they rejected, uh, but to really find a niche for yourself.
2: How exciting or excited are you that the society now has two journals that are just just ITCHY?
0: We had a lot of discussion about... ITCHY got to the point where we were rejecting, oh, easily, um, I would say, 30 or 40% of manuscripts. And there were a lot of things with infection control content or stewardship content that were going elsewhere. And we said, why don't we take advantage of that? Obviously, uh, CID and OFID had leveraged that and actually made it easier for authors to publish. So, I thought it was a real win for, for uh, ITCHY and the society. So, kind of continuing that train of thought, what are some of the topics
1: that you think? I mean, you've probably seen it all at, in your, over the course of your career, what do you think are going to be some of the topics that our society and people doing the work of stewardship and epidemiology on the ground? What are some of the things that they're going to be drawn to in the next three
0: to five years? Oh gosh, I wish I never, never had to read another COVID paper, <laughs> uh, but but to be honest, I think if we leverage our experience right and uh, make continue to make the infection control community relevant, we have to l- learn the lessons from this this uh, this pandemic. So I know we've had discussions at the level of our local ID society about how do you detect pandemics uh, going forward. We've talked about, about uh, measurement of viral genome or whatever in water supplies as a measure of rising possibilities of pandemics. So I think as we become a one world or a smaller world, pandemics are going to continue to be be at the forefront, I think. Antimicrobial resistance. Uh, Certainly, the pandemic has uh, increased the likelihood that resistance uh, is going to increase with more antimicrobial use in the world relative to previous years. I think we need to do more about resources. You're having people drop out of infection control. I'm one of them. To be honest, uh, uh, after Many years at, at the helm, but the res- to be honest, the resources just are not there. On the, we've certainly heard of public health professionals being run out of run out of town, literally. There's not a lot of redundancy in the system. If I if I were sick, we had one person running the show at my place, and it was a tertiary care center. So for two and a half years. We can we can say, oh, uh, there's lots of resources uh, when you look at large centers, but that's not the case nationwide or worldwide, for that matter. I think we really have to address address things. Absolutely. I
1: think that we are just scratching the surface in terms of at a legislative level, people starting to pay attention to some of our issues. So we still have a long way to go, but I guess um, some, movement has been made. Let's talk about your personal qualities that have contributed to your success. Sure. There's mentorship and there are opportunities that open up within one's professional space, but there's also the individual and their grit and determination. Again, we're here to learn from you. So what do you think are those qualities that have made you the person that you are?
0: Well, I think I was fortunate, and, and there, there are other reasons that I could succeed. I had limited debt. I was not did not have uh, children, and uh, so I could take the opportunity to say, "Okay, I can dig down and give of myself hundred and twenty percent." And there were not other factors that that were at play so so to be fair to everybody not everybody has those advantages so i could take a financial hit for a while but i would say persistence stubborn if you will willing to to learn things that weren't often of in, huge interest to me but were necessary those were the the sorts of things that That I think contributed to my success. On that talk about
2: persistence and giving 120% of what you need to do to succeed, there's also been a lot of discussion about those, some of those factors also contributing to burnout and a lack of setting boundaries. And, And I know I personally, as a young woman in Epi, have gotten some pushback from some of my. More storied career colleagues who think that that's inappropriate or very millennial. How do you balance that persistence, that stubbornness with your mental health?
0: Well, I think I had uh, worked with uh, a great group of people who were very supportive uh, at my institution. If I had not had that level of support, personally I'm not saying that I had lots of resources because quite frankly I never never did that you just wanted to go the extra mile and do that I think having routine keeping a routine at home there are certain things that I just require you know whether it's cooking or uh, working in the yard or just having having a Time to read uh, the newspaper or whatever, there are certain inviolate things that I have to do to keep myself grounded. It doesn't mean I wasn't totally crazy for two and a half years. I certainly had my moments. But you could always come back to some expectations and, uh, and deal with things. But you're, I agree. There is a lack of redundancy in the system that can make it very difficult for people to do their best work, and I think that needs to be that needs to be fixed. But to be honest, uh, a lot of these jobs are very hard at higher levels, and when the buck stops with you, uh, whether it's editor or chair or chief or or running a committee, and you don't get around to doing it. The process falls apart. It really starts with you. So you have to make your priorities, I guess, is what I'd say. And for me, these were priorities. I think the superwoman who can do everything is, I think people have realized that's not that's not feasible.
1: Dr. Bradley, do you think that having professional society membership or engaging and being an active member helps to mitigate some of those? burnout
0: issues? Has that helped you along the way? Oh, absolutely. It's very reassuring to know there are other people in the same boat that you can call upon. And I think the various societies, you know, SHEA, IDSA, particularly in the early days, I mean, Michigan was hit very hard in in March 2020 and scrambling to answer the same questions, uh, looking anywhere. I mean, New York Times, Society websites, anything for some idea of how you're going to answer to your leadership the next morning uh, were critical. And so I think hats off to all the people who helped make that make that happen.
1: What career advice would you uh, share with young professionals such as Pam? And how do you think they can avoid maybe some of the roadblocks that you hit or maybe bypass those more quickly
0: in your careers? Well, I think it's kind of trite. Uh, It's an old trope, but you have to be enthusiastic about what you're doing. If you're following the latest latest fad and jumping from one thing to another, it may not be for you. Uh, Things have a way of working out, finding good people that you can trust to give you good advice. I think is 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 essential. I know that people at the higher ranks have their folks that they they constantly talk with about, you know, are you getting off track? Uh, is this the right direction? so so surrounding yourself with the right people and finding something that makes you want to go to work every day and work really hard, I think are essential. Otherwise, it just becomes a job. And burnout is going to be inevitable, I think.
2: You have any suggestions on how to find those right people? You know, when you're coming out of fellowship, trying to find a job for the first time. I, I mean, I'll say it, it's a it, we have plenty, I have hundreds of opportunities to take a job in basically any state in the country. And I that was one of my things that I was trying to figure out when I was interviewing. Are these the right people? And you only get I was just pre-COVID. I was the last cohort to, mm-hmm. to do in person pre-COVID. But now people are doing this online. Like
0: how do you how do you find your people? I think that's really tough when you're doing it online. And also people interviewing you, to be honest. You know, when we do resident interviews or fellow interviews, a lot of times it comes down to personal interactions. Do you just get the gut feeling that you can work with these people and more importantly are the fellows happy and they're also looking at things uh, quite frankly like how are you treating the staff so that's that's a big one at Michigan uh, if you write a thank you note, but you treat the secretaries abysmally, that reflects so uh, yeah, in- person interviews and I and I I wish I could tell you that I had any great suggestions. Maybe you'll be at a stage where you really want to work with a top person in X field, but they're a a pain in the neck to deal with. You're you're going to have to think long and hard about that. Uh, You may be better served by uh, taking a position with fewer resources, less uh, prominent people, but having a better space to develop on your own. I think it's entirely individual. I would I would caution about chasing the brass ring too early and saying, I have to go to X institution. I have to pursue this topic. Topics change. People leave. Are you going to be happy there? It's all about the long game, I guess. Yes. I've been here... Uh, 38 years, uh, it hasn't always been easy, but I, I don't think I could have done the long game otherwise. Dr. Bradley, tell us about some of the, the relationships
1: you have with your mentees that have been special to you. For instance, uh, Dr. Dave Kalfee, who has taken over for you as editor-in-chief of Itchy. what are some of the relationships that you've treasured over time in terms of uh, you being the mentor? and that person being
0: the mentee? Well, I think uh, one person who's done very well, uh, Preeti Malani, was one of my, had worked with uh, the prior editor on Itchy, and I she was at Michigan and had a great journalism background, and she was a great resource for me. Uh, and I was able to, uh, I think, Help her in various ways, personally and professionally. It's often hard to define uh, what you give in a a mentor mentee relationship, you know, some direction, uh, some prodding. So, Preeti obviously has done well as as an editor in JAMA. We have a colleague in in England, uh, Sarah Hederwick, whose husband had a guaranteed job as a consultant. She wanted to be um, consultant in ID and infection control, but that wasn't guaranteed. Uh, she often joked that she had to redo a lot of her training that she had done in the United States because they wouldn't accept her training. And she joked that her, her epitaph would be, I finally trained. Uh, so, so she didn't have it very uh, simply. We did some wonderful studies on uh, fingernails. Uh, and then uh, other notable folks, Shelley McNeil at Dalhousie in Halifax has done a great, gone on to a great career. Um, but I think, you know, over the years, I've tried to help a lot of people, people who just needed uh, uh, letters of recommendation, uh, worked with people like Robert Bonomo, uh, Mark Loeb. The, the line between mentee, mentor starts to blur really becomes about being colleagues and helping each other out. So, so, so nicely said. So Dr. Bradley, to your
2: comment that you just made about the relationships that evolve over time and how uh, people become colleagues and, dare I say, even friends, that was something that I know I've experienced where people that I've met at Shea, at ID Week that I don't work with, um, have become dear friends, even though we're at different institutions. I recently had the opportunity to actually put that relationship in play when I wrote a piece with Priya Nori, who's here with us today, obviously, and Julie Gesto on the recent restrictions on reproductive health for women, meaning all people assigned female at birth. And I just wanted to get your perspective with your long career on the voices that we as physicians, as pharmacists, as infectious diseases and infection prevention experts that we have. I historically hear about the HIV, you know, epidemic in the 80s, and now we've obviously COVID and monkeypox and swine flu and SARS and all of the things. What is our role as subject matter experts?
0: Oh, I think it's I think it's critical uh, not only um, for our our colleagues to get our experiences out there, and certainly I did that as part of the the guidelines committee uh, at IDSA, but also uh, to educate the public. I think the pandemic maybe has begun to crack a perception that about infection control and infectious diseases. Most people, I think, have no idea what we do. They know what their family physicians do. They know what their surgeons do, but they don't really get what we do. So I think it's important to be out in uh, in front because if we don't do it, quite frankly, other specialists and subspecialists will do it and they may not get the context right. I'm sure you've heard many people on the evening news uh, and you're saying, what? Uh, that's, not, that's not quite right. Uh, that's the wrong tact. So I think it's important that we advocate as best as we can. You know, as a professional, we play a role. You have to put on the doctor coat. Uh, you may not like to talk in front of audiences, but you really should get out there and get the message across. So whether it's through guide, writing guidelines or podcasts or or things that uh, I'm not very good at, like Twitter feeds, just do it. Maybe you'll maybe you'll make a difference with somebody. And there's certainly at the level of of communities. We've all seen community docs who are beloved. They frankly have more sway than anybody uh, in the community. If you can make connections with them, that will go a great way. To getting your message out. So in terms
1: of advocacy for patients, especially patients who are marginalized, who are maybe uh, women of color, who are disproportionately bearing the brunt of some of these recent decisions, how can we as subject matter experts advocate for them? What is our role there? Do we kind of stick with what we do and stick within the four walls of the hospital? Or do we have a unique opportunity here to really fight for them?
0: I think think we do uh, at the level of the hospital is important because sometimes, like during the HIV epidemic, physicians had the wrong idea about uh, HIV, And we had to go to BAT to make sure they got their surgical procedures, that people who are perceived as being at risk of HIV got their surgical procedures. There was a lot of bias at that time. So certainly at the hospital, it's critical. But I think also at the level of your local medical societies, your professional societies nationally, if you have opportunity to speak with television reporters, develop develop a rapport with uh, your local groups. Yes, speak out. Nobody knows the subject matter better than you. You know, I'm an over-preparer. You know, even though I know what I know, sometimes I just feel more confident uh, if I prepare, but we can all do this. We all have to get up and present in front of attendings, and uh, this is no different or in front of your CEO, just just do it. Uh, I think it's important. It's an important service, particularly related to the recent developments with Roe. I think it's critical to protect um, our patients that we take an oath to take care of them and above all else and anyone else. uh, And how can we do that under the circumstances? It's been made uh, exceedingly difficult.
1: So I'm going to switch gears. I'm going to ask you a question, Pam. Um, Dr. Bradley ended her last sentence with, it's been exceedingly difficult. So as an infectious disease physician practicing in South Carolina, tell us about what you were going through that day when you either that day that the leak came out or that the official decision came out. Walk us through that and how did that culminate in this amazing piece that you that you led entitled Restricted Reproductive Health and Infectious Diseases Outcomes, a call to action, which as a reminder is on our website, our ASHI Journal website, as well as uh, in our Twitter feed, and we will include that in our show notes. So tell us about that journey.
2: It's been a very interesting journey as a young woman of reproductive age. I have my personal opinions for sure. I have my my opinions in my Dr. Bailey role, uh, both as an infectious diseases physician, but as a uh, infection preventionist, epidemiologist, public health advocate. It actually goes back to when I interviewed to come down here, and people asked me why are you going to South Carolina? And I have a passion for health equity. And that is what drove me to come down here. I actually work on stewardship in rural places that don't have access to infectious diseases physicians. So it gets to the point of also being a subject matter expert speaking out because 80% of counties don't have access to infectious diseases physicians. So we have to do a great job and not just stay in our little four walls of a health care center and uh and really reach out so i knew what i was getting into when i moved to south carolina i remember when the alito um opinion leaked pre uh i think it was in may uh so we knew it was coming south carolina had a heartbeat bill at that point in time hadn't really gone into play because there was some you know What's going, it was one of those that triggered really with, with the row, the Dobbs decision, really. I happened to be, it was a Friday morning. I was actually rounding with my, uh, my medical team and we had had a good week. We'd actually done a lot of discussions about social determinants of health. And so it was really interesting when the alert popped up on my phone, which I had sitting next to me because I was, you know, my pager's on my phone too. And we just took a minute. And I couldn't even like the incandescent rage that I no longer had bodily autonomy to make choices for myself as a highly educated woman who was not qualified to be a practicing physician until I was age 33, all of a sudden, you know, like I have all this education, I have all this training and now I have no control over my own body. It's, been an interesting roller coaster in South Carolina too. That night, there were protests at the state house that I happened to drive past that I've never honked my horn so hard. (laughs) And Julie and I had obviously been talking about this. She was the one that I kind of turned to. I'm like, what is going on in America right now? And Priya, you reached out that weekend to be like, hey, how's it going? And this is the so important thing in, in the COVID times that we've learned, checking on people, just sending a quick text, so important. And so we definitely, I see this as a, a intersection of ER doctors, OBGYNs, and infectious diseases because they're gonna these women are gonna present to the ER. This is with endometritis, with ectopics, bellies full filled with blood, complications. And so they're gonna be presenting to the ER. They need surgical addressment, addressing by OBGYN, and then. We're gonna see infectious complications. We're gonna see HAIs because more people are admitted to the hospital. So that's how that's how I personally see this. That is purely my opinion. And I but that's I was like, we need to get on this and we need to do better than AMP and GENT. 1969, 1970, 1973. Those regimens are 50 years old. I like my ears and my kidney. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, I can do better than Gent. And we know that. I mean, and that's the thing, but we have very little research because since 2023, since Roe, why would anybody need to do this? So it's been a bumpy ride, both personally and professionally. And I when I talk about this, a lot of times I take my personal opinion out of it and I say, as an infectious disease physician, I know X is going to happen. And that's where that piece came from. I tried very hard to keep it non-political because obviously there's a lot of politics associated with. Just the term abortion. And a lot of, ooh, like just just that instinct. I say abortion and people have visceral responses. And that can be different from person to person. I absolutely endorse that. I've had great conversations with people who are on that opposite side of the spectrum of this with me. Even in infectious diseases, people have very different backgrounds. But we as scientists need to continue to do what we've been doing through the HIV pandemic, through COVID, we need to continue to step up and fight for safe healthcare and access to it for our patients, bottom line.
1: Well, thank you so much, Pam, for sharing your truth with us and um, telling us uh, about your particular journey as an infectious diseases physician, a young woman practicing where you are in, in South Carolina. You, you mentioned that I was checking in on folks. It's very easy for me to do that. Uh, practicing where I am. And I just really felt for the, the girlfriends that I've made throughout my years at Shea. And I wanted to make sure that wherever they were, knowing that we were thinking of each other and and um, we were standing up for each other. So thank you for uh, your admirable work in channeling what you were feeling that day into this incredible piece. And of course, thank you to our guest, the indomitable Dr. Suzanne Bradley. We're so honored to have you here today. And just as a reminder that both of their articles, um, Dr. Bradley's Women in Epidemiology and Pam's article we just mentioned are both up on our website and will be available in the show
0: notes. Dr. Bradley, any parting words? Well, I guess I was reminded when uh, Dr. Bailey was talking about endometritis, Remember that Ireland was a strict, no-abortion country for many years, and then a young medical trainee died of endometritis, and that certainly turned the tide at that country. Uh, So the medical profession was able to turn the tide. I think we can look to them and other other examples uh, to help help us move forward. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Him, uh, take
2: us out. Thank you guys for listening. We are excited to be concluding the first podcast for Ashy. Please check out our website. We are open access, so you can click on every single paper that's been published. There's some really great content as we hit our uh, halfway through year two here. Um, we also definitely want you to follow us on Twitter. It's at Ashy underscore journal. And stay tuned for uh, the content that we have coming next.